Hello, and welcome to Siren Coffee and Science, a series of conversations on hot topics in health and social care integration, brought to you by the Social Interventions Research and Evaluation Network at the University of California, San Francisco. Today's episode was originally recorded as a live web event and has been lightly edited for this podcast. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to Siren Coffee and Science. My name is Anand Shah. I serve as the Vice President of Social Health at Kaiser Permanente, and I'm really excited to be doing this session today. Our conversation is going to focus on this idea of awareness. How are healthcare sectors raising awareness about social conditions uh, for the patients they serve in the communities in which our individuals reside? And Dr. Lindau and I are going to talk a little bit about, you know, how the notion of social risk screening fits within this idea of awareness, some of the opportunities and challenges with uh, social risk screening and scaling, and really excited for this conversation for many reasons, honored to serve as the host, and excited as Kaiser Permanente is really, we're thinking a lot about these issues, so I'll be taking notes and asking questions at the same time, and just super fortunate to be here with Dr. Lindau, who I've known for many years and I'm a huge admirer of. And Dr. Stacey Lindau is the tenured professor of the University of Chicago, founder of NowPow, president of MAPS Corps, and a fellow Siren advisor. And we're so lucky to have you today. So welcome, Stacey. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Anand. I'm so happy to be here with you and with the Siren team. You are sitting in my house plant right now <laughs> because I had a little trouble with my laptop connection. So I'm talking to you on my phone and my phone is sitting in my plant. So if you see a leaf pass by, don't be surprised. Awesome. Well, I feel very verdant and it's, it's a safe place to be. So I'm just going to hit a couple of logistics before we get started. This conversation is being recorded and it's going to be released to the podcast. So if you haven't signed up and subscribed to the podcast, please do. This is the first session kicking off the series focusing on awareness, but we follow or in the footsteps of a really great grounding conversation between Dr. Gottlieb and Dr. Bibbins Domingo that rooted this conversation in the NASM framework of integrating social care and healthcare efforts. So maybe we can start with this idea of what is the connection of social risk screening to awareness, alignment, assistance, and this sort of framework that um, we're organizing these conversations around? Well, before we do that, I'm just going to take a sip of my coffee which is actually tea, and make a toast to this inaugural video version of Coffee and, and Science with Siren. So um, I'll take a step. Yes, cheers. Cheers. So you and I both love that first podcast from Siren. And it was uh, for nerds like us, nerds of social care and integrated care and whole person care, um, hearing the conversation between Drs. Gottlieb and Bibbins Domingo on sort of a little bit of what went on behind the scenes to pull together that really useful report and the five aims framework, just loved it. And I think it's a great launching pad for today. Just that framework creates a map that helps us locate today's conversation. So what I took from that conversation and from, from reading the report is that awareness is an A that's really at the center of the framework, um, that 
um, this idea of integrating social care into more traditional medical care begins with understanding the patient and uh, the patient as a whole person. And then the other A's line up with different levels of intervention. So we go from awareness to wanting to take action. So assistance at the individual level, adjustment at the clinician level. So adjusting our recommendations, our practices, our guidelines, our guidance to patients based on our understanding of their needs. Alignment, which is really a I think a community level concept, pulling together stakeholders across sectors to align strategies to intervene to help support not just individuals, but larger populations. And then advocacy, doing this work in a way that produces insights, hopefully data that can be used as a truth, an understanding of what's really happening so that we can collectively advocate to drive towards health at the population level. And in the conversation, I heard another A, which was aspiration. The idea that we aspire to do well and good, not just by our individual patients, which is obviously where it all starts, and for those of us who are medical doctors, critical, but to do this work, this assessment and action-taking work in a way that scales up from individuals to populations that we manage in healthcare and bigger to driving health of whole communities. So we're going to focus on that, that center of the circles today, right? The awareness place. And I think that's a, a really important place to start. Thank you for grounding us in that. I think I can visualize the framework. And if, for those of you who read the report, probably even the, the image now. And thanks for growing the framework in some ways with, with the aspiration idea that I think Dr. Pivens Domingo mentioned. Um, maybe one other grounding comment before we really dig in. Why does this topic matter to you? You've spent a lot of time in this work as a researcher, applying this work as a social entrepreneur in so many different ways. I'd love to just hear a little bit about sort of what drives you to sort of focus on this area. Well, knowing you for, for a long time and, and knowing Laura and probably many others who, who might see this or be with us right now, what drives me is the idea that I really believe in, which is my job as a doctor is to take care of whole people. And even an extension of that, maybe not all doctors feel this way, but I also believe in caring for whole people in the context of whole communities. So I'm going to add another A to the, to the concept here, and that's assets. In the work here in Chicago, that leads me to be worthy of participating in this conversation. We started with an asset-based community development framework. And in that framework, we have to do our work, whatever the work is, by first understanding what's working, what's working in a system, what's working in a community, what's working in a person. And becoming acclimated to this concept of asset-based community development, I think really changed my conversation, my assessment conversation with my own patients. I even bring that word assets to the conversation what's working, both what's working inside your body, but I'm a gynecologist, you know, what's working in your relationship? What are the resources? What's working in your community? And how do we balance what's working against what are the liabilities, if you will? What are the broken parts? What are the problems? That asset-based approach is powerful 
even at the individual patient level. And so when we think about assessing people to address their whole person needs, I'd love to tell you how much I care and believe in, care about and believe in the idea of understanding not just what people's needs are or deficits are, but also what are their assets. And that makes it easier to have a conversation with people, which could otherwise, you know, not done right, could be stigmatizing. You know, there's already a power dynamic with the white coat uh, between doctor and patient and diving right in on all the things you don't have, especially something like food or shelter, not just for yourself, but for your children, could be a, a difficult conversation that if, if not done right, could really erode or strain the doctor-patient relationship. It matters to me to, to assess and understand the patients in a way that is understanding both of the problems and the assets that we can be that can be brought to bear. And it matters to me because I believe that in order to deliver good medical care, we have to understand whole people, not just their diseases but their whole biopsychosocial experience. I love it. And you know, no surprise that resonates deeply. And I, I love this sort of asset-based thinking approach. Well, I, I think for me, it's just in some ways rooted probably most centrally as an ER doc in this sort of feeling of helplessness that I felt taking care of patients where their social conditions were a big part of why they were in the ED. And I felt like I could do so little for them. We were trained to deal with folks with terminal conditions uh, for their physical health or or minor ailments that we were well-suited to address. And we just, we had so little to address those other, the other issues that sort of matter in people's lives. And so that I, I didn't like feeling that way. And I've been working on it for many years now, as you know, to think about, well, how can we better equip each other to be better partners? I think the framing around assets at the individual or community level is really powerful. So let me try to follow that thread a little bit. I think a lot of folks on this call are folks who are in this space, and we know some of the challenges and struggles, but maybe let's start with where do you think social risk screening is a good idea? Like, where is it? Where is it going well? Where can it work well? Well, it's amazing, frankly, that we can have a business-relevant conversation about social risk screening. And what I mean by that is yesterday was the day that new rules went into place regarding billing that acknowledged time spent and complexity of decision-making in patient care as it relates to social determinants of health or social risk factors. It allows for us to account for those things as real factors that um, uh, drive how we spend our time with patients and how doctors bill for medical care. When when this work started, when Siren was created, when I when my own work started on the south side of Chicago, we could only imagine a day where the business of healthcare would acknowledge the work, uh, the relevance, the complexity that these problems play in individual health and in the delivery of healthcare. So I think that's that's really notable, and I know it's not our job to talk a lot about that that policy shift today. But given the timing, I thought I should mention it. Assessment done right is intuitive. 
I mean, you said you you do it in the ER. I do it in OBGYN. I, you know, I'm I'm subspecialized now. I take care of women with cancer who are looking to recover their sexual function. Do I talk about social risk factors? Absolutely. I couldn't possibly assess and address the problems if I didn't understand the quality of their relationships, if I didn't understand the basic resources they have to work with in order to, to stay healthy. It's intuitive that we learn these things about our patients. And to decide that it's outside of our work scope or not in our lane and put blinders on and wall ourselves off from these realities of our patients' lives would be bad medicine. Now, when we talk about screening, you know, we can draw principles from epidemiology. There's the classic Wilson and Youngner guidelines on when is it good to screen. And interestingly, those were written in 1968, the year I was born. And I read that Wilson, who was British, traveled to the U.S. to understand screening, multi-phasic screening, and its value potentially for the British um, healthcare system and stopped at Kaiser Permanente on that tour, by the way, in Oakland, California. (laughs) But, you know, we have well-established, you know, time-tested guidelines about when it's appropriate to screen for something and when it's not. And one of the principles that sticks out to me is uh, that there ought to be something to do about the problem we identify through screening. In other words, we ought to be prepared to take action. Now, we can debate this. We could say, you know, screening itself and and actually Laura's uh, work, a randomized trial that assessed screening and and intervention for social needs, gives us some sense that maybe screening itself could be therapeutic. You know, doctor, clinician, and patient talking about these things could be good for the patient experience. And I'm sure done right that that's plausible. And asking people, are you starving? And checking off a box, but leaving that that can of worms unaddressed could be really painful to somebody who briefly gets their hopes up that help is on the way and learns, um, no, we just wanted to know that for our uh, for our database or our research or or some program we might introduce down the road, but it now is left hungry and maybe even feeling more ashamed about it. Like that's when screening wouldn't be good. And screening has its costs. You know, there's work out of Virginia Commonwealth University, Dr. Tong, who shows us that primary care doctors uh, surface important information, but also see that there's time and burden to screening. And so if we're going to do it, we have to do it in a way that recognizes there's opportunity cost to everything we do. We implement a 20-minute screening protocol. That's 20 minutes of, of somebody's time that's not being spent doing something else. A lot of the nuances, because you highlighted both some of the opportunities where there's, when, when it goes well, it feels intuitive. It's part of the conversation. It's, it's easy for the patient and the clinician to engage in a way that feels respectful for both parties and doesn't add extra work, and, but provides context to make better joint decisions about um, how to move forward. And we all know so many of these things don't go that way routinely, um, especially when we try to make it more systematic and scale them. And that's, I think, the tension that so many of us are feeling. I can say at KP, that is really the essence of where we are in this. Of We know we want to pay more attention to understanding and supporting the context of individuals and their social conditions. And how do we do that in a way that respects the human, the member, the family, 
and doesn't add just one more thing for the healthcare worker to do that, oh, by the way, is working in the midst of a global pandemic that, you know, we all are living in. So thank you for that richness. I'm going to try to pluck a couple of ideas through those. Maybe actually, maybe we can go deeper for a second. Um, you wear so many hats in this, which is great as, as an entrepreneur who's helping highlight those assets and facilitate assistance as a researcher who's looking at this interaction and questions, when you think back about the research that you've done, what are a couple of things that you've been surprised by or that you want to highlight sort of in your own work? There are probably two observations that really stick with me. Now, first of all, to the last part of our conversation, because like you, I'm assessing naturally, I'm, and then in some instances, I'm assessing much more systematically using you know, validated tools. I'm really driven to have an assistance solution. How, what am I, okay, now I know this problem, what am I gonna do about it? I'm really driven that way. And I think most doctors are, we're problem solvers. So for the last 10 plus years in my lab, University of Chicago with innovation funding from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, We've been working on designing and testing engineering solutions that get us from assessment to assistance. And I do think there is a role for information technology to help close that gap. And in fact, in our original experiment, that path from assessment to assistance was fully automated. It required the clinician to press a button, the after-visit summary that we had to press anyhow to uh, satisfy meaningful use guidelines. Um, and using informatics, we were able to generate resources that we thought were relevant for the patient's need based on everything we knew about the patient surfaced through care. I, so I do think there is a role for innovation and for technology to help close that gap between assessment and assistance, even to do assessment. Patients, we've shown in, in a 10-site study together with Siren and many others, that patients are willing and find it acceptable to do self-assessment of, of risks that can then be uh, digitally transferred to the medical record and acted on behind the scenes, you know, through algorithms or acted on more, more manually. Um, so I think one of the important discoveries from the work is that uh, technology can help to solve for some of the burden, and it should. It should help to solve for some of the burden that would otherwise go to clinicians in the assessment assistance um, pathway. The other finding that's really fascinating to me is that half the people, 48% in one study, 49% in another study, 47%, 50% of Patients, and we have new data showing um, nurses and, and primary care doctors as well, half the people who are exposed to the information about the resources in the community a person might use to meet their social needs or their other health self-care needs, half, half the people take that information that they're exposed to and share it with other people. And on average, they're sharing with two or more other people in the span of short-term follow-up studies. So that's probably an underestimate. What that tells us is different from the usual interventions that we do as doctors, prescribing a medicine. Sometimes people share medicine. I work in the sexual medicine field. It's, I've heard people share their Viagra, but usually when you prescribe a medicine, it goes to the person you prescribe it to. If you implant a device, it's in the person you gave it to. It's not being shared. But when our intervention is information and information delivered in a way that anticipates it might be shared, it can the intervention can spread beyond the clinician delivering it, beyond the patient receiving it, 
and to good effect. Because what wouldn't be good about a patient telling people in their family or their neighborhood where you can get food support, where you can go for yoga, for stress management? I love that finding, and it's actually stimulated a whole area of our science. This notion of the ripple effect of these pebbles that dropped in, into the water will sort of self-perpetuate is, is really exciting to think about of how do we harness and grow that. I want to maybe follow up a little bit on the technology and data piece in a, a different angle. Questions emerging from some of our listeners. So I think Lisa Lines asked a question about how we might think about using area-based social risk scores or deprivation indices to target social risk screening. I'm curious, have, have you tried any of that? Or what are your thoughts? You know, so I, I actually been working with colleagues who uh, presented at an NHLBI workshop a few months ago to synthesize our presentations and report them back. And one of the pieces of writing I had to do was to summarize all the different kinds of data sources that could be brought to bear to understand the risks of an individual. And we've been talking a lot about that individual level assessment, and that's an area where I've spent a, a lot of time and effort. But many people um, and systems are starting to uh, integrate data at the community level, oftentimes we don't have the granular data we want, so it's getting integrated from the county level or higher up to help us know, like, is this patient coming from a community with a very high rate, say, of food insecurity or very high rates of death due to diabetes? I do think there's opportunity for um, being informed about the patterns of, of people's needs using data at the individual community and, and higher level. And I think as we consume those data into our workflow, we need to be thinking not only about how does it benefit or potentially present risk to the individual, um, but also how does it benefit or potentially present risk to uh, to the community. You know, we I can't believe a half hour has already gone by, Anand. Um, but this is an opportunity for me to say my dear, beloved, brilliant colleague, Dr. Monica Peake, and also at the University of Chicago, who's an expert on race-based stigma and, and discrimination in healthcare, is the next guest on Coffee and Science. And I know she's thought a lot about the last question, and will have a lot to say on the issue of, of how we need to think about this work in the context of disparities mitigation, not inadvertently increasing disparities while we try to address social needs. So that would be something none of us would want to see happen. Yeah, thank you for that. And yeah, I can't believe the time has evaporated. I'm restraining myself from following up and asking more questions, but I hope this has been a good lead-in for folks to the types of conversations that we want to have with you all. And as Stacy said, there's, I think, a number of great sessions coming up that maybe I'll, I'll plead with Laura to maybe let us come back or extend this because I think there's so many threads that I want to follow up on. I love hearing people's questions. So at the very least, if maybe there's a way um, the organizers could capture the questions and Anand, maybe you and I could like do an email exchange on those or something like that and share it, share it back or post it at the website or come back and have, have another conversation. That would be fun. Uh, I'd love to be in your plant again and uh, 
well, I, I think that's all of the time we have, unfortunately, today. But thank you, Dr. Lindau, for uh, joining us and everybody for listening in. As mentioned, uh, the scheduled next session is February 5th with Dr. Ajayi and Dr. Peek in a conversation about the intersections between racism, discrimination, and social risk screening in clinical settings. So I hope everyone joins in. Hope we can continue this dialogue. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Siren Coffee and Science series, a project of the Social Interventions Research and Evaluation Network at UCSF. Raven Forest Communications does our editing and sound design. Susan Shepard designed our cover art, and Aurelien Jukla composed our music. Laura Gottlieb, Dylan Gonzalez, and Yuri Cartier, that's me, produce the podcast and the live event series. Join us for our next live event by visiting sirenetwork.ucsf.edu. Questions or comments? Email us at siren at ucsf.edu. And lastly, let it be known that the views and opinions of the participants on this podcast do not necessarily state or reflect those of the regents of the University of California, UCSF, UCSF Medical Center, or any entities or units thereof. Take care.